Okay, so this is the battle podcast. This is the second episode. This is six months after the first one I did with Sebastian. And I thought I was going to do one like every week. And I guess I got burnt out from all the other podcasts. And you could do one per year. One per year. <laughs> I feel like I am willing to do a lot more now. Oh, I was in Boston and I figured I should meet up with Jason. Uh, yeah, we're now recording a podcast. Oh, we're here. <laughs> Hi, we're going to try video. Oh, yeah, we're going to try video too. And then Jason just worked with us to announce preset modules not preset, <laughs> preset modern, modern slash I, preset modules I, I, own name. yeah i think and we can talk about that too but yeah thanks for joining or letting me talk with you about this happy to be here I yeah i didn't have to go very far <laughs> in your place thank you for coming to boston <laughs> um so yeah i don't know what we're gonna call the title of this thing but it, we, it said something like keeping javascript modern that's why i accidentally typoed preset modern but I think we were trying to say that this is going to be a temporary thing, yes. and so it's going to be the future of preset ENV because this whole thing doesn't really have to exist, but we want to test it. Right. Right. Maybe we should just start with how did you get involved with doing this idea and sure. and why? Yeah. Yeah, sure. So for for me, the backstory is uh, I work on the Chrome team as a DevRel and. One of the things that I find myself doing, no idea whether I'm supposed to do this, but I find myself doing, is uh, combing through traces and bundle analyses of tons and tons of different websites. And uh, when I can get access to the source, building them and seeing what went wrong, combing through source maps. And so I sort of have built up a mental list and in some cases, uh, many, many uh, documents <laughs> uh, describing the problems that I seem to the patterns that you're finding yeah exactly and, and this is real world sites so. right so like for me the things that I'm most interested in are symptoms that show up as a result of tools because mm. it's it's less about like developer needed to accomplish something that was difficult and so brought in a big library to do it that's pretty justified it's more like if the tooling was was doing something behind the scenes that the developer may or may not have realized. And and so when, when that starts to impact bundle size or bring in code or, or change the output of something, that's where I get really interested in because that's a potentially uh, a potentially solvable at scale problem. Right, because right? it is a tool. Yeah, so. exactly. You fix the tool, you fix All every those. configuration that uses it. Right, so like if, say, Babel like, outputted something that was a little bit bigger, right. whatever that means, and you were able to fix that for everyone, right. then that's a huge size win. And and then I guess your goal is to reduce the code size for all websites then. Right. right. So like, and that's that, you know, if I had a personal mantra, mm -hmm. it would be to make the web smaller, mm -hmm. uh, which sounds quaint, but if you look at it from the perspective of making the web smaller without making the web Please. less feature complex right, or whatever, yeah. like if, if you're just looking at ways to optimize the web in its current state, then that's actually potentially a useful thing to do. And, and so for me, like if I was to, let's say I, I got all these traces and I went to the companies and the people who were building those projects and I submitted a pull request to remove the, the little bit of code that got injected or whatever, mm -hmm. I would have to do that a million times to have any success versus if I can identify a potential improvement in a tool that, it, that has widespread use, right. That's every little change is magnified, right? Yeah. A, a 200 byte output size improvement in Babel is probably terabytes worth of network bandwidth. 
Right? Um, which is kind of staggering. That, yeah, it is staggering. I mean, I don't think we think about that as people that work on these projects. Um, you know, you're dealing with like these minutiae things, but it's like it does affect a lot. And and maybe we've been, I think maybe as a community, we've been focusing on the code size of individual libraries mm-hmm. and importing them or frameworks. I'm certainly guilty of that. Right? Versus, <laughs> I, I guess especially you, right? <laughs> but then it's like only recently that I think more people have gotten together to think about the tooling, like so like bundling and compilers and so Babel is a good example. Yeah. Maybe it's like everyone's focusing on reducing that one-time cost of the library versus mm-hmm. the tool which everyone is constantly using all the time. Right. Um, yeah, Which I always, I always think about as like, if you remember like, I, I'm terrible at math, but I, the one thing I do remember is like the slope of a line formula. You've got mm-hmm. like your okay. side value and then the one that's scaled up. Yeah, y equals okay. okay. it's, it's like, it's really easy to focus on that static base cost oh, and be okay. like, you know, what's the size of this on disk or whatever. Or like when I install a dependency, how much does it weigh? But that scaling factor is mm-hmm. the one where when you've been working on an application for three years or 10 years, like that one starts to matter way more than any base cost you would have had. Mm-hmm. So like, I, personally, I think there's, there's worth on both sides, both sides of that. Right, thing, exactly, but like, yeah. oh man, if you're looking for, for value, especially if, if we have this notion that, that we've underinvested in tooling or that there's, there's more investment opportunity in tooling, then that seems like a huge reason to, to go and look at that scale yeah. factor. I, I guess personally, I would say that it's lacking in the sense that usually there's a lot of activity around frameworks and libraries. So, and then just even the fact there's the companies that support them or they literally, I guess, in some sense own them, or there's conferences like ReactConf, ViewConf, there's no like BabelConf or WebpackConf. And I was thinking we should do a ToolConf or something. ToolConf, I love that. That'd be cool. I know who could be the the band that plays at the end. (laughs) Okay. Tool. Tool. Yeah. (laughs) That makes sense. Good luck getting them to come. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I guess it's just like we haven't really focused on the tools and they kind of just quote-unquote work and I think in majority of cases for something like Babel like no one you don't really have to think about it right and then there's the point where you know something goes wrong and then you report the bug and no one has any understanding of how these work right and hopefully this podcast and we do more of this stuff is explain kind of not just like literally how it works but the concepts of philosophy behind certain things right. and, and kind of the struggles that we're dealing with to even get to solving some of these problems right because um, if, if you're building something that sits on top of these tools these are your problems right and then we don't have ownership over that thing because right. you just kind of hope that people like us have goodwill and are willing to continue to do <laughs> maybe this. we don't yeah maybe we, we do. don't we do. we do we do <laughs> But, you know, life gets in the way or, you know, you, I, I was just saying, like, in the open source, like, you know, anything could happen. Like, you have, you get health problems or you move or you yeah. go to school, you get out of school, you get married or you get kids. Like, all these things happen. And we're just relying on a few people yeah. to literally work on these things. Yeah. The maintainers um, of the infrastructure. Yeah. And that's just open source in general. But And I think the weirdest part here is, like, uh, for, for a, a gaggle of programmers... Uh, and, and and other folks, but uh, but you can just look at the programming aspect. Mm-hmm. These are really interesting problems. Yeah. So I'm always surprised when like, people don't just why naturally would, gravitate oh, towards. Why is there not more people? <laughs> yeah, it's just like it's neat, meaty, like fun, isolated challenges. Right, and it's like you know, is it because they're so far removed from how it works? They they're it's either too daunting or there's just n- lack of context that you don't even know what you know questions to ask. And right. I think. One of the most important things I've learned is like learning, like how do you ask the right questions? Right. Not literally getting the answers, but like just 
being curious about how things work and getting involved, understanding the people behind the project rather than just using it. Like right. that's the whole thing, right? Yeah, that was a good segue. That was a good intro. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully that gives you. I think it's like that. What we just talked about is like gives you a sense of the things that we're thinking about. You know, it's not always very technical. I mean, it is technical, but um, there are philosophical like implications behind those things. Mm-hmm. And it's important. Like we were talking about earlier for just um, like this idea of like the models that we have in our heads and the idea that like the people that maintain these things have different models and the things people that use them and they have probably have a very limited model of what right. like say for Babel like what does it do you know right. um, and, and so you know if we want to go back like what is Babel it's a way of like the limited view would be oh it turns my code from new JavaScript to old JavaScript right. which is what it did before and that's still what it does but right. like it's a lot more broad so like right. you were mentioning earlier it's just a general transformation yeah and, and even like with the you know looking at the the model that somebody like you might have in their head of what Babel means not just as a mm. body of code but as like what's its purpose in the world for, is for JavaScript for, yeah it's it's yeah. something more than just like a code transformer right? Right, right it is a tool that potentially enables developers who normally are required to work within the syntax boundaries to move beyond that mm-hmm and, and to sort of express themselves in ways that are not possible if if the only vector you have for producing programs is writing the syntax. Right. And I think that as someone that works on it, my essentially my goal is to somehow, how do you uh, embody that those models or values through right. the culture of the project and our, the things that we, the content we put out and stuff like that, right. where it's like, yeah, if... I don't want, Babel is not that reductive where it just does that. And I you know, maybe one of my ideals is like, how do we create this um, community or platform? It doesn't have to be Babel itself. That's why it's like, I want to look beyond mm-hmm. the project of a way of allowing developers to, like what you said, like if you think that you can come up with a different syntax, then make it. Or if you can't make the literally the syntax, describe what the limitations of the current syntax and you can be a part of this process of just generally tc39 and right. the whole making javascript better and i think that no one's in that headspace because i think we assume that you know like it's kind of like the whole i keep using this analogy of like you know something drops down from the sky <laughs> yeah the 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 javascript tablet of what syntax you can use and i just have to be, i'm stuck with it i mean not that it's really easy to contribute it's it takes a long time but i'm just saying it is possible Unlike maybe other languages where mm-hmm. you, you, there is no option for you to do it. And if anything, it's almost like Babel is this, like, not reaction, but a way of protesting against using whatever people tell you to. Because right. if you wanted to, you could create your own language out of it. Babel script, quote-unquote. I don't think everyone... It means that doesn't mean everyone should do that. I'm just saying that you can. There's a freedom right. of doing that. And I don't think people are exercising that or understanding that's an option. You just kind of get it. Right, like Babel... Babel the implementation is a source code transformer. Babel the reason for existence is a democratization of language design. Yeah, yeah. And and like it, it sounds grandiose, but that's that's very literally what the project is for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I don't, and I, I would say I I would admit I'm not doing the best job of figuring out how to say that because it sounds too like weird or it it's like creepy. what are you talking about yeah <laughs> yeah but but if you just think about other languages in general mm-hmm. and what we use and just like how they work it's very different and javascript is different maybe we should embrace that before i was i, I mentioned before like 
um, in our conversation about this Pandora's box scenario where like, well, if we open the floodgates of people able to just do whatever syntax they want, it's going to make everything horrible. But it's like, maybe we've gone too far in the other direction of right. just, um, you know, why did a lot of the stuff happen in ES6 and, and now like optional chain, even like Coffee HobbyScript. Script. Yeah. And that was because someone, someone decided to, to do it <laughs> and then everyone adopted it. And it's like, in some ways... I tried really hard to try to align ourselves with the, the committee and the process. Mm -hmm. And that kind of limits the potential creativity of people, just regular developers. And I, I mentioned the Tools for Conviviality book. It's like similar thing. We, right. How do we allow just people, not people that have to be in a certain position to do that? It doesn't mean that everyone's going to be capable of doing it and we need mentoring and teaching, but like mm -hmm. it's it's a freedom that someone can take advantage of that is not in like, I don't know, any of it, like Java or right. whatever. It's, right? it's a, it, the, the tooling that underpins JavaScript, Babel's job there is to make that more accessible than other languages. Yeah. Right? To, to make the language itself more malleable and, and easier to reason about to somebody who otherwise might not have got involved with AST transformations right. or whatever. And it's like the rising tide lifts all boats right. analogy. Um, and, and and it's there's that balance because the ops, the problem with everyone doing it is like the scenario where like you go on GitHub and it's a JS file, but like, you know, it's just <laughs> random stuff. Um, just append letters to the end of JS. Yeah, yeah, every time JS, X, Y, Z, whatever. Yeah, that'd be funny. And like, what does that scenario look like? And, and maybe we should try it. And I think that's the experimentation part. Um, but also at the same time, we need to make sure that our the platform is stable. Right. And, and maybe it's like science. It's like, we need the, the thing, allowing people to contribute. And maybe there are good things that we can take in so how do you make sure that people are still experimenting, mm -hmm. but then not creating bifurcation of all these platforms or whatever? Yeah. It's like at some point you either need to codify that there exists a meta language level and then the language level. And eventually we, we like to migrate things to the language when they, when they prove their worth, or we need to, you know, even if that's not codified somewhere, like make that the culture that we have. Yeah. It's like we are all sort of working to, towards making a better language, but our vector for doing that is making other languages. Yeah. Or making extensions to our language and, and just recognizing that like these are, these are built to die. No, yeah, that would be, <laughs> I think that idea of built to die is super interesting. Uh, and maybe that should be a part of our philosophy as a right. project itself. And I, I've, I've heard of, um, I think it was Brian or Phone gap was supposed to be something like that, right? Right. And Babel, in a way, I mean, let's we can transition to preset EMV. That <laughs> is the whole point of that project. Like Babel will continue to exist, but in different ways. Just like I mean, just like in our lives, like you know, we change what we our jobs or what we like or what we're working on. And so for us, it's like before it was six to five, right? It turned ES six to ES five, and then ES seven, ES five, whatever. And but the assumption there is that if that's all you think Babel is, then you will never get rid of Babel because you're just always compiling all your code to Babel. But, mm -hmm. you know, the obvious thing, not the obvious thing, but the thing that's happening over time is everything is moving forward in right. some way. So the browsers that you support are going to change. You're going right. to eventually drop old browsers. Babel will implement new stuff. T39 will add new syntax. And then uh, the browsers will add in the new syntax as well. So once the browser implements arrow functions, and you're still compiling Babel through Babel, then you don't need to 
you're going to have, it would be in your interest to send less code because one of our goals is to have less code so for users. Okay, so then what is preset EMV? It was, it was basically a way for users to not have to figure out when to turn on and turn off plugins. Right. Because of the way we implement each plugin independently, I mean, sort of, right? It's a high level. And so ideally the, the, the workflow would be right that, you know, when a browser implements a syntax natively, you should be able to drop it. Right. And you shouldn't have to think about when to drop it. Right. So hopefully Babel will just do that for you. Right. So sitting on top of the fact that Babel evolved from being six to five to being a higher order tool end to end. Mm -hmm. This basically lets you define something in the nomenclature of a web developer, which is like, I support edge 16 plus right. and, and, you know, and evergreen browsers and takes that and generates the end, the end, right? It's like, we assume you're writing modern JavaScript, whatever the current yeah. spec version is, and we will compile it to, you know, the, the best code we can, given the constraints of all the browsers that you, that you need to support. Right. And that's a non-engineer, like piece of information, like right. meaning that if you're a, <laughs> I don't know if you're just the PM program manager right. or, or I don't know, like the business person, yep. they should hopefully know which browsers they support. And if they don't, as an engineer, you should ask them and they should figure that out. And then right. that way you could even tell them if we are clear about what browsers we support, we could potentially send less code and make more money or whatever it is. Right. Yeah. Like, I don't know about website faster. I don't know about you, but I've definitely been in the position in the past where that communication of the importance of supporting any given specific browser or browser version was very unclear. Yeah, I think so. And it's funny because as developers, we have this tendency to, you know, decry having to support older browsers, mm -hmm. but I've totally been in positions in the past where, you know, out of one side of my mouth, I'd be saying, oh, you know, it sucks having to support IE8. And then I would find out a year later that I was the only one left who cared about supporting IE8. <laughs> And it's like, what? I've, I've made work for myself, right? right? It's like, yeah, that's, that's a, it's a weird thing to find out, but it's, it's because there's a communication model. Yeah, communication. Place there. Sure. there was no like, you know, single source of truth or whatever about right. um, how that, I guess that's present. <laughs> it's still recording. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that's right. fine. Yeah. I think a lot of times you assume, I guess, some of these stuff like, oh, what browser you support, right? It's just like, it seems like pretty essential things to know but it's just it's just there um and sometimes what people will do is they'll use preset emv and then they'll find out it breaks and people you get reports but you know that you don't support those browsers so it's like that is that's right actually yeah you your the system is working as designed because the parameters that you put into it based on your business data or whatever mm -hmm. you had agreed to to break those older browsers right it wasn't a it wasn't a technology failure. It was it was a, a common understanding that you would not choose to support those things. Right. Yeah. So I guess the goal with preceding V is just how do we prevent un quote unquote unneeded compilation? Right. How do you prevent somebody saying, okay, I'm going to compile to ECMAScript five, and then never going back to look at that again? Right. And and I think that and if we want to go from the browser perspective, you work on a browser, so. Yeah. Right. I mean, you work at a company that has a browser. So um, from that point of view, also, if everyone is using Babel and they only use Babel and there's nothing like preset EMV, they have no incentive to, there is no real world application of people using native 
ES6 syntax because it's always going all the way down to ES5. And so there is, okay. the browser has an incentive to convince Babel to <laughs> to use Recipe, basically, yes, right? absolutely. Um, and, and this actually comes even down to prioritization uh, for, for somebody who is building a JavaScript engine. Oh, yeah, it's, yeah. It's really, really difficult to say, like, oh, yeah, we're going to optimize how fast arrow functions are if you know in the wild that's 5% of websites, mm -hmm. right? Like, or would you rather do that or would you rather optimize arguments access in in sloppy mode because you know that's 95 percent <laughs> right I see. and and then it's weird though to think about like you have another option at your disposal there which is to change the tooling that governs 80 percent of those sites right but it's like maybe you don't think that's an option because you have to interact with another project versus right. just it's oh it's kind of like maybe a lot of the times we just observe the environment and we try to act on that yeah. versus realizing we can act on the environment, meaning talk to people mm -hmm. essentially and work with them. I mean, I've, I've totally run into this in the past where I, I pull a trace of something and I have source access and I can just change something to the source to, to affect the change that I need mm -hmm. on that project. But in doing that, I'm, I'm limiting myself to, you know, in terms of scope, right? scope like yeah. it's O one. If I can find a way to to go a level further and to find the root cause of the cause that I found, now I'm looking at ON. ON, yeah, right. Big uh, change. And, and so that's where preset ENV is potentially a, a place to collect data that can then be used to, to shift the ecosystem more easily, rather than saying like, okay, we've identified that Babel's producing you know, whatever mm -hmm. feature X. We are going to go and we're going to do programming things to change that. Preset AMV is potentially a slip layer for us to be able to say like, oh, Babel's producing X. I can see why it's this browser version. We're going to just change the data. We're going to you do a workaround to address yeah. that browser version. I, I like to think of, I mean, Preset AMV is like the evolution of what Babel was in the beginning. Right. And, and it's, that's an artifact of showing why Babel is a transitional tool right. of like, the fact that um, unlike every other language where you can just upgrade, which although now that's not really a good assumption because just an example of like the Python 2, the 3 type of thing. <laughs> we're there. We're almost there. I mean, we realize that, you know, upgrading is really hard. Mm -hmm. and, and so maybe JavaScript is a language where it has to be that way. And so that whole jump from ES5 to ESX was a big jump, but we're always going to have new features coming down the line. Right. And so how are we going to... You know, if the goal is eventually, if you needed to use that feature, that syntax, that you would choose to do it, and you do it in the most you know efficient way possible, how does this tool help the whole community move forward? Mm. Right, like first convincing people that this syntax is even worth using in the first place, and even um, maybe arriving at what that syntax would be. Oh yeah, even beyond. So that's pre-work, like right. the whole stage zero type stuff, with the, the process. Yeah, prototyping. So Babel can help with that because. We, we've established maybe that browsers, you know, are we going to write that code in C++ and maybe it takes a long time? How would you justify that investment? Right. Yeah, exactly. And versus anyone can just make a plugin right. and share it with people. And it doesn't have to be on NPM. You could like, right. I, my one of my ideals is like our REPL should somehow allow you to fork the parser inline or something mm -hmm. just to test out some syntax, oh, share it on Twitter. Love. And well, just, I mean, we have AST Explorer. Which is, is sort of like, like along those lines. I would love if the battle were at the syntax level. Yeah, it was like a check. Oh, God, yeah. That would be amazing. Like, 
just like I want to see, like just I want to just feel what it looks like to have mm -hmm. two question marks for the optional training. I, I don't know, like just to see it, like Interesting. maybe it's a bad idea. But I want, I think that's like where we all get into the theory. Like we all can talk about how like a committee feels very ivory towerish, mm -hmm. but like we all do that too. Where we're kind of just theorizing versus just like just do the work, which right. might not be that hard. We need to make it easier at, for sure. our team, and then you can look for yourself. Then you can share it with people. Right get feedback, maybe you realize it was bad, and then you can explain to people why I thought it was bad, and everyone learns why this type of thing doesn't make sense, or, and you can document that, and that's the history of, like, people have attempted this kind of thing. Okay. That's what we're supposed to be doing in every language, right? We're learning from each other. Right. But this is within JavaScript itself. So yeah, that's so instead of, thing. instead of having discussions where we trade theories and ideals, we can have discussions where we trade prototypes. Right. Yeah. I guess that's a whole... Tangent. But that was the, <laughs> the purpose of Babel. That, that's the purpose of Babel, even if you don't use Babel as a, literally the artifact tool that you didn't install it on NPM. Right. Babel should be still important to you if you care about JavaScript. Mm -hmm. Or maybe even if you want to go more meta, like programming language design or something. Right. In a different way. I mean, it doesn't mean that is the best way or the right way. That's just one way that it's playing out. And maybe we should experiment that. Um, yeah, so we do the pre-work of before the language is done, Babel helps with that. And during the, once it is stage four and it's in the language, you don't know if you can use it immediately based on your browsers. Mm -hmm. So that's literally what preset EMV will help you. If you su support, if you support a browser that does support it, then Babel will not compile it. Right. It won't touch it. But if, if you have an old browser, then it will compile it down and you don't have to worry about it. And then later when you decide to change your browser to move forward, then it will also drop it and yep. not compile it. And so that way, and theoretically, the ideal situation, you, you just use it and nothing, you don't have to think about anything. You just write your code, right? To me, the, the ideal for preset EMV was always that percentage, right? Where it's mm -hmm. like preset EMV has a rough estimate of browser market share. You just say, hey, I want my stuff to work in 98% of browsers. And that's the config, right? I see, yeah. But then I, I think this is where we run into that situation of like, there are browsers that are taking a very, very, very long time to upgrade or to go away. And and this is, I think, one of the things that preset EMV might have predicted a little bit, but uh, but the way that it played out was was unfortunate in that it, it killed off some of the value that that percentage uh, that way configuration of configuration had, right? had. Yeah. I, I didn't come up with that idea because I thought that the per browser and the version idea made more sense to me because mm -hmm. I was thinking from the PM program manager. You have a browser support matrix. Right. right. Put that in. They already have that. Versus yeah. like the percentage thing is like, I don't, who, no one thinks in that way. <laughs> yeah. Even though it makes percentage sense. Percentage of what though? Yeah. <laughs> and then also like there, and I guess now there are more browsers, right? Mm -hmm. Some of them are based on Chrome or whatever, like, and also in different countries and all these, I mean, there's mobile browsers, like which ones that you're supporting that whole thing is. That matrix is already difficult. That's, I guess, yeah. that's the problem. There's a weird permutation problem there, where if you say you want to support 98% of browsers, it might be that that means you could drop IE11, but support a bunch of very, very small market share browsers, or you support all the smaller market share browsers and keep IE11. And really, if all you specify is a percentage, who decides that? Right. <laughs> it would be the browserless maintainers. I guess, yeah. But that's just like super super arbitrary right yeah if, so, if you're deploying for enterprise in north america it turns out you probably wanted the ie11 mm -hmm. and i guess even that gets into the issue of preset envy that we're going to talk about which mm -hmm. is that if there's just more there's just a lot that we don't know yeah <laughs> like you know i maybe when you think about browsers you just think about like 
Chrome, Firefox, Safari, and I guess like Edge or something like that, right? And then our Internet Explorer. And then later you're like, oh, there's all the mobile browsers. Mm-hmm. Oh, and then now there's like the app browsers, which right. is a whole nother thing, right? And Facebook's then and web view, Facebook's Instagram's yeah, web view. Instagram, yeah, or IoT type stuff and mm-hmm. all these things. And it's like, how does that affect the support matrix of Babel? And then eventually, maybe all those things are really old, and then it's the same thing. The worst case scenario of using preset EMV is that it just compiles everything, right? Right. So, we, so let's go into the the problems, I guess, of what or what we've realized are problems that we didn't know up front because we we wouldn't have understood the implications. Right. Yeah. So we we touched on one, which was you have browsers that are not evergreen, but that don't go away, like the IE11s of the world, which prevents. Oh, so we have to explain the the way the conservative approach of preset EMV, which is uh, so specifying your browser versions, meaning that um, when you make that list of versions, it does the least common denominator. Approach, right, 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 yeah. So, and this this comes back. So, Babel can make no assumption other than you will produce one set of JavaScript files and ship them to everyone, right? Because it is a tool that runs per module right now. Right now. <laughs> right, and yeah, it, it makes sense that you would, I mean, you would want to make, you know, multiple bundles or multiple sets of things based on which browser. Like, ideally, every browser should have whatever the optimized version for that browser. Right. I mean, assuming, but that's like the idealistic scenario where you don't have to worry about like caching and yeah. like stuff, or well, bugs in Babel too. And so. Babel has no idea what your setup is, right? Right. It's, it's generally run as a tool that's deeper in the chain than that. So um, we just assume one yeah. build. Yeah, so it means that when, when you say, I want to do a JavaScript bundle that supports uh, current versions of Chrome, Firefox, Safari, and Edge, and IE11, you might as well have just written IE11. Right. Because that's pretty much that's what whatever doing. the lowest common denominator is, mm-hmm. is your governor. Yeah, so that's the it's a just a thing that i decided that made sense um but it has certain implications um so that's an issue if you know you're always stuck supporting ie11 you don't have any you don't take any advantages right from that and then so and so that's if your if your browser's list never changes the other one is if your browser's list does change or if you're doing bundles that support different grades of browser support so you're going back to that uh, what a what a product or program manager might give you that browser support matrix mm-hmm. if you have like A, B, and C grade yeah. support, if you have multiple bundles, your your lowest common denominators for each of those bundles may shift, but you're still always going to have one. And that's where we get into sort of the mechanics of how preset EMV works. Preset EMV is, is backed by browser compat data, but it would be somewhat unruly to take, you know, thousands of browser compat tests with names that test specific details of each syntax feature and match them up with a, I guess, corresponding set of a thousand Babel transforms that transform those exact syntax features. Because, mm-hmm. like, you can imagine... Right. Um, every bug and every... Oh, man. Like, every line in your code is associated yeah. with some test or something. Yeah, literally. And it's like a bunch of if statements everywhere. And it also assumes that there's stuff. test coverage for 100% of a feature, right? Which is why I... You know, we have been some reason to use test 262, which is the official test, which is like right. there are literally 10,000, like thousands of tests. If it passed test 262, it's valid JavaScript. But then that in itself, test 262 is just tests by the committee and someone has to create those. So right. they can actually miss tests. And we've actually, some of our team members have actually added tests because, you know, we, we found something. Mm. Um, that's a whole scenario in itself. Like, how do you come up with a test to t- test your language feature? Right. That's like in a the language. weird meta thing. 
I, I saw, I've talked to some people that work on it, like Leo, he was saying they have generative tests. So they create code that will create more tests for them. And that that becomes the test for this feature. Yeah. Because in the end, like that's, and maybe that's why in, that's an argument against adding syntax mm. and like why maybe at the extreme level, like list type stuff is good because it's just the parentheses and right. you create your own thing. There's no, you create your macro system, all that stuff. And then with us, every time you add a feature, you have to test against every other interaction with every other feature yeah, to make sure it breaks. Yeah. <laughs> and so our tests become impossible to right. do. And, you know, a lot of our tests about this is more inside baseball, but like we use snapshot tests, essentially, we call them fixtures. It's just input output, right? And make sure they're the same, but that doesn't mean it runs. And so we need <laughs> executable tests and right. those are the test two, six, two tests. Right. Those take longer to write, they take longer to run, but at least you can verify. But the problem with the snapshot test is, I mean, you just kind of like skim through it and there's like lots of them. You don't know if they're wrong. I mean, well, and so this actually comes back to the, the problem that I kind of stumble onto in preset mm -hmm. ENV, which is every once in a while you have preset ENV doing something that looks absolutely logical, right? It's mm -hmm. it, preset ENV is going to generate, or it would have generated uh, an arrow function inside of a class constructor, which you know, for a given browser support target, looks like it is absolutely good to go. Right. And then later on, a bug report gets opened on mm -hmm. Babel repo saying, hey, uh, this this syntax is supposed to be valid in Safari 10, or in the version oh, of right. GSC that supports Safari 10. Right. But as it turns out, when you run it, it throws. Uh, and it's in a specific example, any arrow function inside of a class definition throws in Safari 10. And, and that's where it's like, Someone on the battle team would have had to run into this bug in order to know that, in order to put that in the data that powers preset A and B. And ironically, it's sort of a weird play here where it's like, you're probably not going to run into the bug because you were transpiling before this became an option. So we need, uh, <laughs> it's just like, yeah, we need tests where you compile all the way down and yeah. then every level in between. And then, I mean, ideally we have some sort of funding from companies that allow us to like run all outputs for all browsers. Yeah. Or something. Every then, test 262 test okay. in every Babel output configuration, or every preset EMB output yeah. configuration in every browser. And then literally, you could take that data, suck it back into preset EMB, and say, I can guarantee you that test 262 passes with this configuration mm -hmm. in Safari 10. Right. I mean, and it, it is a lot of complexity, and it's like, is, why do we even do all this? <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, there's, there's lots of people out there who say, oh, okay, this is a reason why we shouldn't transpile. Right. Right. It's just like, just, just write code, and if browsers can't run it, then that's their browser's fault. But, but I think this is where the, the situation gets really awkward mm -hmm. is there are lots of browsers out there that are just never going to be updated, right? Mm -hmm. there, there's newer versions of those browsers that are actively developed, but the, the ones that are released are end of life. And yeah. taking the stance of not transpiling sort of punts the problem onto the shoulders of developers who just want to ship a product. I mean, that's, that's the whole, the core question of Babel should be basically am I allowed to write this like right. syntax right. or when is it okay to write this syntax? Exactly. And it doesn't have to be like, are you, is it physically possible to mm -hmm. do it in the browser? It might not be efficient or it's not optimized because they, you know, the browsers have to take time to implement it and it pass the test, but then the transpile version is faster right. or something. Which we have absolutely seen right. in the past, right? Because yeah. especially like a brand new syntax feature in a JavaScript engine is rarely going to have all the optimizations of the thing that it is usurping. Right, because the things that are optimized now are things that we've been writing for like yeah. five, ten years. Totally, and, and they've been incentivized for optimization for those five to ten years. Right.
Yeah. I also think it's interesting to look at the let's not transpile mm-hmm. thing. Because for me, especially having gone through the whole preset EMV preset modules thing, I mean, I didn't know that an arrow function inside of a class constructor threw in Safari 10. Yeah. And yeah, I'm a person who might have considered writing untranspiled code, but I'm never going to find out that that's broken. I'm just going to not get usage in that browser anymore. Right. And like, unless I'm maniacally studying my error logs and figured mm-hmm. out that the weird cryptic error that I maybe wouldn't even get in my tracking mm-hmm. like, was like meant that there was right. an error function in class, I'm never I'm just never going to know. So I guess even if you don't transpile, the data that we get from transpiling actually helps everyone. Yeah, we, we need the centralized knowledge mm-hmm. of what works and what doesn't. Right. And and I think it's it's more specific than just testing, uh, does a browser support error functions? Right. What is, and what does it mean to support, like, what does that mean? Does it support them everywhere? Yeah. <laughs> you know? In every scenario, or <laughs> is it just the basic case, or right. does it just past the syntax like it doesn't error but then when you run it it fails like there's so many scenarios and like and even compatible is just a um simplified version yeah. of what it's a window is. into that right browser support like the the weird one i'm thinking of is like uh edge 16 passes almost every test for functions and error functions you can think of but has this one weird thing where like if you define an arrow function like const foo equals an arrow function the dot name property on that arrow function won't be foo. Mm. It will be undefined. Right. And for the ninety nine percent case, for if you're if you're a developer, you don't care. Yeah. You're not using you're the dot name property name, on yeah. that arrow function, right? Or like what is name? They don't yeah. know what name is. But but then yeah. from Babel's perspective, yeah, right, exactly. Do yeah. we bring in the arrow function transform? Right. So that that's that's the scenario where I've always had this struggle of you know, we need a default, and then we, and then do we have options? So this, uh, this, this, this is loose versus strict. Yeah, this is the whole like <laughs> loose, strict, and then R- right in. Thing. If you if you know what loose and strict mode mean, <laughs> yeah, you mean. may be the only one. <laughs> and it's like, is the default that we should output the simplest thing possible because ninety nine percent of people mm-hmm. will only write that code, or should we be spec compliant because someone's going to write something weird? Not weird, but like different and not, not, the 1% thing and and it would be weird for them to like be like why is this not working right I would if Babel said for... you can use arrow functions yeah and and what you know 99 people say okay that's cool I can use my arrow functions as callbacks and it works totally fine for them right. but one person said no I can't they don't have a name property and that's in the spec or something yeah. yeah exactly it's like like you know or, or I'm, I'm running something on my code that optimizes all of my anonymous functions uh, to yeah. arrow functions and I'm relying on names somewhere. Right, like, like minifications. Oops. Right, or optimization. Yeah. Yeah, so it's like, how spec compliant should you be? Is that, I mean, you would, maybe you would think that should be a goal, but then also like, there's certain trade-offs. There's you can a make. huge trade-offs, right? The, the one is like, you, you end up shoveling boatloads of code into mm-hmm. people's bundles to fix problems they don't have. Right. Because we don't know what problems they have. And then, so it's like, do we, are we okay with kind of catering to the, the majority group? Right. Or this, um, the more spec compliant thing? But then, yeah. I mean, I, maybe that's similar to the progressive enhancement um, versus, uh, was it, graceful degradation? Graceful degradation. Sort of. Yeah. It's, it's almost like you access the dot name property if there was some way we could catch that and say, like, hey, turn on strict mode. We've got you covered. Yeah, yeah. Default. That was another idea I was like, we should analyze the output or how yeah. they use it and then that will be smart enough to suggest hey if you don't need this you mm-hmm. can save this much space or something like the, the awkward thing here is so, and, and this is true for a lot of the ast based stuff is like 
you probably wouldn't know from the AST yeah. that that was that that dot name property was being accessed on the function. Certainly not if you're running the AST. Uh, the static way of yeah, yeah static analysis won't necessarily be enough. And that, like, there's options there. It let's say Babel was a project that was doing more than per module transforms. You could have like a dev mode, and in dev mode, arrow functions that got transformed would have a getter install in the name property. And if you tried to access it at runtime, it would throw or tell you you're not just right. Like, there's solutions there. But every time you sort of take a step towards being helpful, you might cross a boundary of like, that's not how people are using Babel. Right. Or that assumes too much about their end result. That assumes there's a dev mode and a prod mode. Maybe that's not a thing people are doing. Right, I don't know. And, and so then not knowing which one to, to lean toward, you mm -hmm. decide maybe, oh, I'm going to go with, just this is like most life now options. Yep. Give everyone the freedom, the choice to do it, and then you realize that that's a really bad idea because yeah, no knows. one wants to know. No one knows the answer. They don't know what they want, I, and it's like people want you to choose for them right. in some sense. Well, and, and, and so, especially for preset A and B, we've said, give us your browsers list, and we'll give you the code that works. Right. And the options are essentially an admission that like we can't. Yeah. <laughs> right. Unless everything is going to be in strict mode by default, and and we're we're taking the trade off to one extreme, we we can't commit to saying that this code will run in every browser you say, because I I don't think developers, if they were forced to make that decision, would make that call every time. Mm -hmm. I think they would they would go for a middle ground. Yeah, I certainly do. I mean, I'm a loose mode user, so I can yeah think, yeah like, just give me whatever's the smallest. But yeah, I think the general thing I would say was like. If you're a library author, you, you, you can probably confidently use loose mode, but yep. if you're an app, maybe not as much. If you have ever looked at your output, especially if you consistently look mm. at your output, by all means, turn on loose mode, and if it works, use it. Right. Um, especially if you have error monitoring and stuff in place. Like, it, it is an option that's there for a reason. Yeah. Um, I, I think where that gets tricky is mm. if you don't have good test coverage. Yeah, because then what what happens is you use loose mode and then that will turn off the transform right. but you were relying on the loose mode behavior and the, the yep. native version is spec compliant yeah exactly yeah you you end up building code that only works when it's broken right <laughs> and and i guess i mean this gets me to think about like just optimization in general and like is it worth it because if you think about stuff like you know like c compilers and how like the output has nothing to do with right. the input because of the optimization, and those have bugs, and this is we see this problem in minifiers where like it becomes unreadable, mm -hmm. um, and then it's really hard to debug a minifier because it just says broken, and yeah. then like the giant bundle, and like, there's there's almost impossible to find yeah. out. Line zero character six yeah. sixty five thousand ten. And so, so <laughs> what about file? I mean is like you need to be make a judgment call on what kind of optimization starting work. It's kind of like the whole micro optimization. Thing. Mm -hmm. it's, like, it's not worth doing it because. It's just making it really complicated, and we're, we're like making this assumption that we're never gonna write bugs, and it's like we need to almost write code knowing that we will introduce bugs. And the whole like, the more code you have, the more bugs. Yeah, sacrificing debugability in order for, in order to have optimizations is. Right, I guess that's the implicit trans tough a trade off that we don't think about much. Yeah. Um, okay, so that was a whole tangent and again. But I guess our the we we mentioned this already, I guess, but. The, the point is that if uh, the browsers that we are in our targets, mm -hmm. those are not updated, and then people report bugs in those browsers, and we, oh, we did, okay, so there wasn't a tangent. We, we talked about the spec compliant thing. So if, and I think that's our approach, where if someone reports a bug, you know, should we fix it, basically? Right. And so, I mean... Yeah, you know, I think in most scenarios, if you're just open source maintainer, yeah, you'll fix the bug. But yeah. then in our case, what we're doing is 
we're admitting by fixing that bug, we have to decrease the target of that browser. Right. And so now everyone that has that browser need, is now outputting more code, even though they're not running the, into that issue. Right. And it's, it's also difficult to bring the marketing along with that. So like mm. somebody coming to preset ENV, when they, when they look at what does preset ENV do, the, the idea of preset ENV, which is still largely intact, is it will output the most minimal code possible for your browser to support the set. But with each quirky bug that gets reported, we get a little bit further from that goal. Yeah, we actually decrease over time, despite really slowly, and right. then we don't really tell anyone, I guess. It doesn't, right. You don't really notice that. And I never noticed that. So you're like, oh yeah, I'll fix a bug. And then like, but then when you look at the real world output of the code, you're like, why, why is in the worst case scenario that preset ENV output is the same thing as if you just ran all of it with that one? Yeah, so this is exactly where my journey with preset modules kind of started, yeah. was I was doing a bunch of work on module, no module builds, which for those that don't know mm -hmm. is you you write or you create two bundles in your compile process, mm -hmm. one that is targeted at the group of, of modern browsers that support ES modules. Right. And to clarify, you are not using ES modules, you're just using that as a cutoff point. Uh, it's roughly analogous to Edge 16, Chrome 60, Firefox 61, and Safari 10.1 on mobile or 10.3 on desktop. Mm -hmm. Why do I remember that? Um, <laughs> I don't even remember it. <laughs> yeah. But it's, it's just actually like, oh, okay, those are the ones that support modules. And there's a convenient thing where you can have a script type equals module, mm -hmm. stick your modern script there, and then script no module, stick your legacy script there. And you don't have to do any work, you just get loading for old browsers and new browsers. Because the browser ignores the... Yeah, it ignores no module. If it supports module, it ignores type module if it supports... Uh, if it so doesn't you have, support. You have two script tags where yeah. one of them runs, basically. Basically, yeah. And there, there's, you know, there's weird little caveats, you need yeah. a little hack at the top of your file to, to work around okay. in Safari. But it, by and large, this is sort of the easiest way to do graded browser support as long as you're okay with two grades. And that, that's kind of like a practical step instead of the whole matrix of every yeah, browser the user deserves, agent. Yeah. yeah, figure out that user agent and then make a battle compile for each one. Yeah. Um, this is kind of like, we'll just do two. Right. Um, and I guess the thing that you found was that in some cases, no module and module, the two bundles were basically similar. Yeah, I had cases where they were byte for byte identical, <laughs> which was weird that we were just weren't using uh, constant let. But, but what I found was like some of the the absolute highest value transforms that preset ENV could be dropping when you think of just like modern Chrome, Firefox, and Safari. Async. Yeah, async await generators, tag templates, like all these things are like the modern version of those things are like super optimized, fast to parse, you know, smaller in general, better, they compress better. Mm -hmm. I kept finding that all of those were, were being compiled to ES5. Right. So tag templates were getting compiled to strings and function calls and uh, async await was getting compiled to regenerator, which is obviously quite high cost. Mm -hmm. And it, sort of this, this kept coming up over and over again. And originally I just thought it was like, people have misconfigured preset ENV. Right. But eventually I sort of... Deeper. Like, yeah, yeah. Like, I had seen it. <laughs> this this was what happened. It was just in core. So eventually I started digging and found that over the course of two or three years, uh, a bunch of bugs have been opened, kind of what we described. It was like, I ran into this issue, issue where I converted over to using arrow functions, and when I use Babel, my arrow functions in... Almost all browsers have a dot name property, except for Edge sixteen, uh, or or you know more more difficult people would say, oh, I'm using preset ENV uh, with the ES modules option, which outputs sort of this Edge sixteen plus build, and I keep getting this error where there's like a weird 
exception thrown every time I instantiate a class that has an arrow function inside of it. So just like all those edge cases, and I don't, if I think back, like I remember some of them, but it's just like, oh, I mean, and also when you hear stuff like that, it's like, that's weird. Why, that's weird. I don't really want to fix it, yeah. but I mean, it's a problem for them and maybe, maybe none of the team focused on it and someone else, maybe they decide to fix it and we're like, well, of course, yeah. we'll just merge it in. Yeah. And then that leads to this problem of what you were describing. And the one I do remember was there was something about, I forgot which browser about, there was like, it was in a for loop mm-hmm. and it only happened. Safari. It only happened when the for loop was over a hundred thousand or a million. And I was like, when does that, oh, yeah, when yeah, is that ever going to happen? And then we ended up like, you know, merging that fix. And I'm just like, we just made the code way bigger for all these people. I'm just like, why did we do that? And yeah, this is it's a tag template call site tracking in Safari 10 and 11 has two different weird bugs that uh, get triggered at various states of optimization. Right, and it makes sense that would be an optimization <laughs> thing. Yeah, but it's like, how did you test for that? Like, oh, the code has to get no, hot and yeah. then <laughs> It's like, what? So as it turns out, so it, it you know, foreshadowing here, when yeah. I when I did preset modules, I had to write a test for this. Uh, I found oh, a way. You oh, can wow. you can mock the call site using uh, using bind. And and that, that happens to trigger this bug. It doesn't trigger it the way that it was happening in the wild in the bug report, but it triggers the bug. Wow. But it was just like crap. Like yeah. <laughs> I think Justin, mm. the the guy who wrote lit.html found that because mm. it uses tag templates. Oh right, right. And and the problem was like the, the outcome of it was disastrous, right? The tag template is always supposed to give you the same reference to an array of strings every time you call it, and this is super useful for caching. Right? Caching, you can right. Store stuff in there, or use it as a key in a map, and in Safari, it didn't. It just gave you a new one every time. Uh, uh, or a second bug that I found when I was going through that wasn't even documented anywhere was it, Safari did an earlier version of the tag template spec, and if you had two, uh, two different call sites inside of the same parent function, they would get the same strings array, but they're different call sites, so they could have like different expressions in them, which was just like, I can't imagine being somebody who's relying on tag template <laughs> actually be like oh. yeah and so and so literally you have a bunch of libraries now you know you've been stepping inside the battle problem mm-hmm. here you have a bunch of libraries now that implement their own tag template call site right, tracking right, right, right. because the cache is not reliable and, it's, and it just came down to this one browser bug yeah i think yeah the general thing is just browsers have bugs yeah and, and that, that will always be the case. And we, I just, it's hard to acknowledge that. And what are the implications and what that means? And each individual bug that gets reported is like, it's a small thing. Right. Oh, right, right, right. Tweet and, and preset AMV is actually really well designed in that, like, it takes two seconds to, to change the data definition and, <laughs> and recompile. It's like, okay, yeah, non-trivial, whatever. But it's, it, it sort of buries the, the lead on yeah, the fact. It's like, right. this is a huge deoptimization. Right. Because what we'll do is, like, if it's Chrome 50 and now we're all Chrome 49, it's like, the config change is good, but then the I guess we don't see the the input output relationship when right. when we run when we change Babel that way. Right. Um, okay. So basically, the whole the summary for that is that when browsers have bugs, Babel has to fix those bugs. That causes greater output for most people because they don't have to they don't hit those bugs. Right. And so basically, over time, preset MV gets worse. And this is not this is just like abstractly like. It gets worse. Like maybe it doesn't affect you at all. It might affect you a lot. Right. Um, so then, what is what is our way forward with that? Right. Yeah. So so this is having sort of seen the bundles, work back from this. I started to realize that like a lot of these bugs, we have sort of a, an out here, which is mm-hmm. that the bug is in a browser that has very good support for the syntax in question, except for that one case. X. Right. Uh-huh. Um, 
And, and so there's a bunch of cases, like, I started to just catalog and a gist. I sort of like, oh, I found this thing, oh, I found this thing. Uh, and there was only five or six, like, really specific pain points that had been logged to Babel or, or discussed online. Uh, and in cataloging them, pretty much all of them, when I looked at them, like, as a unit, I could go through and write syntax transforms that, instead of taking a tag template and transpiling it to all strings, the way. Yeah, like, instead of ES5, I could just take the tag template and change the tag function to something that fixes the call site caching, mm. which would be like a, a little like a small change. fifty byte helper right. function, right? right? And then I've now shipped tag templates in production, right? But they work in Safari, uh, or like the the async await thing. Um, I'm trying to remember what it was. It was oh, it was an async arrow function inside of a class is is the one that that causes this error when you mm -hmm. instantiate the class. Um, so you could just turn the arrow function into a function. Which right. Babel already has a literally a built-in method to do. It's a one-line transform right. to say make it a a, a function. Uh, okay, yeah. And and the cost of that versus changing the, the arrow to regenerator is like a lot. Like night and day. Night right? and close, yeah. It's like if it didn't use uh, the this keyword or touch arguments, it's almost identical. So it's kind of like finding these little like patches that you can. Yeah. And you already are able to kind of picture like oh I could just make a bunch of plugins right. and then maybe oh maybe that could be a preset. Yeah. So I think this whole thing is a very natural like evolution of observing the, the environment and then evaluating the right. results and then coming up with some ideas and eventually telling us like, hey, maybe we should work on this. It's, it's just difficult, and, and, I, and this is where I sort of, I understand preset ENV here. It's difficult if you've been working in the model that preset ENV enabled to take a step back and yeah. say, wait, could we do patching? Yeah. Right, is, is this completely different approach either something that we can do or something that we can incorporate or whatever, it, when, when you have so much great infrastructure set up around that exact yeah. way of doing the conditional yeah. down leveling. Right, and I think that when I, when I saw those kind of issues, I was just like, how do we fix this? I just kind of... Do you, do you fix time. it by starting a fundamentally new project? Right. Probably not. <laughs> yeah. Right, and so this is what that is, Babel preset modules. But, yes. and, we, and we had a discussion on what to name it, and that was very difficult, and that's... <laughs> I mean, we keep getting it wrong. I mean, like modules, like is it? Because then I think the first thing would be, oh, it compiles modules. Yeah, doesn't has nothing to do with modules. Right? <laughs> it has something to do with ES modules. Yeah, and then I mean, what, there's no modules transforms. Yeah, <laughs> right, because it's patches. Yeah. So we're oh yeah, we're gonna call it like battle preset fix browser bugs or something like that. <laughs> Try and go as literal as humanly possible, right? Like an Apple length method name. And I think I, I the. the you know, the fact that it's really hard to come up with a name shows that this doesn't need to be a thing. And so, right. yes, you know, I, so maybe we, well, I think we already described the preset. It's a bunch of bug fixes in the form of Babel plugins yeah. that transform the, the code in a way that isn't like the huge, like the whole transform, right? It's like the smallest possible change right. to fix the browser bug, essentially. Yeah. And there, there's yeah. a transform to fix the function.name property. There's a transform mm -hmm. to fix the tag templates, call site tracking issue in Safari. Right. And, and if you just look at the transform names, it's like fix yeah. tag templates caching, right. fix arrow functions in class constructors in Safari. Yeah, like yeah. They're, they are laser focused fixes for those things. And you compare that to the, the transform names in Preset AMB and Babel, which is like transform tag templates. Right. To what, right? Yeah. And so it, it's, it's a collection of transforms that they just do the patching. Mm -hmm. And so I think the curious bit here is sort of there, there was a marketing premise here that it does fulfill which is if you are doing a 
uh, you know, a compile that is targeting ES modules supporting browsers. This is the minimum number of transforms required in order to reliably ship that yeah. code right. as modern code. But the, the problem is, like, if everybody were to migrate from preset env to this transform, this transform is just stuck in time. Right. Because it doesn't it doesn't fix bugs that are in Chrome ninety, which you know if anyone's not familiar with Chrome version numbers, that won't happen for another few years. <laughs> Those bugs are haven't even been written yet. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Like, and, and so it, what? What you don't want to do is is like pitch this, and then it's the new six to five. Right. And we regress all the way back to the beginning. Because this is a one time. Time. Right. Uh, snapshot in time, and and I think preset was supposed to be also in for Babel like a way to transition. So right. we need this approach to be able to transition, right. and so it's not really that the literally this preset that matters. It's the idea behind it mm -hmm. and how to somehow integrate this back into Babel itself, which right. maybe in this case it's just preset EMV. And and so maybe what we decided was just that we want people to, to get the benefits now and right. maybe get feedback, maybe we're doing something wrong. And over time we need to figure out how to basically patch preset EMV. Right. And I mean so, right now, you know, you and I, you and I talked about like those browser support cliffs that we have crossed. Mm -hmm. The the ES modules browser support target is it remains a pretty good one because that's a pretty modern set of browsers, right? You're talking 88% yeah. market share and, yeah. and fairly recent browsers. The further we go into the future, the less true that will be. Eventually, you know, ECMAScript 50 will come out and it will have, uh, you know, AI functions or, or whatever. I'm trying to make it something mm -hmm. completely implausible, but like that will be a cliff where it would be so illogical to be using a preset that was written in 2019 that, that, that couldn't self-evolve that you would have to use something else. And so I think this is mm -hmm. where, like, there there needs to be some sort of a path for preset modules to move back into Babel Core and just become a behind-the-scenes feature that, uh, you know, we had talked about this in the Babel meeting, where, like, when we look at the compat data, we would take the browser compat data and apply the patches, like, uh, overlaid that we know we have, right? Like, oh, yeah, we know tag templates are busted in Safari 10, but we've got a patch for that. So don't consider them broken in Safari 10 because our output will account for that. Mm -hmm. And then we, we calculate the browser support matrix. Right. And it would be in the project's best interest and in all of our best interest to make sure that we are trying to contribute as much as possible into that patch substrate so that we can keep that baseline moving forward as right. best as we can. Right. And the interesting thing is there is prior art for this. Babel's code generator always wraps I'm trying to remember what the exact thing is. I think it's await expressions mm. in parents uh, yeah. to fix a Safari bug. And and it's like, okay, so so this has been done in the past, right? That's not an option. Oh, I didn't even realize that. Yeah, it was like there was a bug at one point, and it's such a cheap operation right. to do. It's like, for everything. Done, right? Oh, wow. And and in that regard, Babel has never had to be like, oh, we can't use uh, you know async await in Safari because right. of the parent thing. So there's, there's prior art there. Okay. I think the interesting thing is just how does that scale up? Right, because you know, essentially what we're asking for now is a process change right. for Babel as a project right. to essentially add these things. And then it sounds like it's sort of, I thought that was kind of like what jQuery was doing too, right? right? It's not, it wasn't, people talk about like query selector and stuff, yeah. but it also did fix browser bugs, right? Right. And, and kind of allow, give you this API so that it just works across all browsers. And so we're kind of doing that with syntax. Like, mm -hmm. It's not just the browsers implementing it, but implementing wrong and then needing to like fix. Yeah, and for for Babel, the key there would be 
whatever infrastructure gets put in place to apply these patches, it needs to be such that if, if you're using Presidian V and you, and you define your browser support target to be Safari 12 plus, you shouldn't get that tag templates transform. Right. We want it to be there by default when, when you need it, but not when you don't. Yeah. Um, I think that's a good explanation. So let's see. And yeah, I think my the what what, what like well, how would you describe this scenario all the way down, right? It's like, you know, I mean, we can, we already mentioned it, but like there's a whole path for this whole thing, right? Like, you know, the proposal for the future and then it gets standardized and then it gets implemented in Babel and then it gets implemented in the browser and then there's a bug in the browser. Right. Then, you know, the browser bug is that reported, it could have been reported to the browser directly. Right. And then we don't know about it, and then eventually someone reports it to us, yeah. and then we have to create the patch for it, and then you know that whole thing. Like, how does that work? Because right. like right now everything is just so ad hoc. And yeah, like I, I had to my my list of bugs was a mix of uh, WebKit tracker, Chrome tracker, and Babel issues, and yeah. like very few of them had both. Yeah, which was interesting because it's like okay, at, at some point it doesn't matter what happens. Somebody who needs to know about this isn't going to. <laughs> <laughs> and and it, the interesting thing is, like, Babel actually is not even the maintainer of that compat data. No. And it wasn't reported through the compat data. Mm. And because it's like, who who is going to be a Babel, or like a, a web developer using Babel, running code in a browser, but then know to report it over at All these the Kangax compat table right. data source, right? Like, how do you get there? Yeah, we need a coordination effort. Yeah. Or, like... I mean, that's why I feel like we have, we don't, I mean, not that we need to make our own table. I mean, we, we maybe we do, and we have a real reason to do that right. if for the interest of our project. Yeah. Um, unlike basically every other tool, because maybe, I, I thought for a lot of people, the compat table was just like a nice thing to look at. Mm -hmm. You don't, and you can make decisions for it, but like for us, it's literally the data yeah. to make this work. It, it's so what you would have written as code. Right. But it is code for us. Yeah. Um, and so we need like other, for other people, it's okay if it's kind of wrong. It's like, mm -hmm. no, it has to be right. Then. Yeah. Um, and and for Babel's purposes, I mean, you, you could make an argument that it would be nice to have that data in-house so that it could be mutated when fixes are produced. Right. Or just like, at least it works in a way that um, we can manipulate. And, right. And I don't, I don't, I don't, I would love to not maintain more stuff. <laughs> I would love yeah. to not have to recreate anything either. It's just like, can we work together to... Right. That kind of and, and then bringing in the whole test 262 thing it's like mm -hmm. how, how do we does Babel do the work of meshing all this data together or do we just need a centralized place for this data right because yeah. there's also the reporting aspect like if I'm a developer using Babel it might be that's the most logical place for me to go and file a bug but like mm. does Babel then go and file that bug right. with the browser engine like, do we make a bot that does it you know <laughs> like, I don't know like, Who, who's maintaining that infrastructure <laughs> nobody yeah cool I think that basically covers all that maybe you could mention this last all these last parts what about this first bullet point i, I wrote this and i don't remember what i was thinking oh um yeah literally so, just yeah so this was just you know we we published babel preset modules as its own independent thing you can install it download npm some projects are already using it if you have a module no module build setup if you are experimenting down this this is one of the reasons why it's its own thing right now is like more people need to do module no module we want to make it easier if you are in that position, if you're maintaining one or want to maintain one, please try it. Please let us or let me know on file issues, whatever. Yep. Understand that long-term, we would love for this to migrate back into preset EMV. 
thankfully for you, really, that that's just a configuration change. So it's super, super minimal overhead, and you can try the things out today. Mm -hmm. But yeah, definitely very interested in feedback. Interested if you get any exceptions thrown. <laughs> so if you have production error monitoring, I want to know. Uh, <laughs> yeah. What projects are you using now? Uh, Next.js okay. ships it, which is pretty cool. Yeah. And then, let's see. Okay, so that, I think that we basically went over like why we're working on this. Yeah, the feature of that. Um, I did post a thing on Twitter on if people had other questions that of things we should talk about. Or maybe, I guess, I don't think we're going to go over them, but we can mention them. And maybe they can be, they're probably going to be uh, future episodes because they require a whole different, it's a whole different topic, I think. Especially like so, uh, Vincent, a lot of other people were asking about compiling node modules, so <laughs> yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> something something try running Babel on your output yeah, yeah. maybe topic for a second podcast. yeah I, I also when <laughs> we have more to say about that I guess yes. what was another one Vincent it was on the outline uh, oh probably just, on your outline yeah it was on our outline to put in a second podcast <laughs> <laughs> I mean there's a lot yeah yeah it's and a super it, interesting area and I, I mean, certainly in my own head I've made a very compelling argument for uh for running Babel twice, or I mean, we, we I think you've written like at least two or three blog posts, and I wrote one a long time yeah. ago. Those are just the public blog posts. You should see the stuff I've pitched at people internally. Um, yeah, but yeah, like, like how do we get library authors to? I mean, so basically, all the problems we're talking about now are your own code, right? And then it's like, wait, a lot of the code that we run and we ship is not even the code you wrote. It's right. libraries, and they are all on ES five, and we have this whole other problem, including this problem. Yeah. Um, what if it's too solved. late? <laughs> right, like quite literally, what if all the code that you're passing to Babel is already transpiled to ES5? Mm -hmm. Does anything question. matter? Does it even matter? Why are you even worrying <laughs> about your own code? Yeah, exactly. Right. Well, that's a good teaser for the next. Yeah. Find out next on the Babel podcast. I think that's good then. Cool. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Thanks. This is really great. I don't know. Now we get to find out if. Sir.